Oh, Father in heaven, we pray for the enabling and anointing and unction of the Holy Spirit. Lord, let these words of life ring. Let them ring in the hearts of your people. Lord, may they thrill the souls of those who have come today. May they give us ravishings of delight and looking forward to what you have prepared for us. I pray for help today, Lord, that you'd give me the grace to impart this truth to your people. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And we have been looking at this verse of Scripture for the last four weeks. We've looked at the love of God. The love of God for a world that is sinful and rebellious and corrupt and wretched. The astonishing thing is that the Bible would actually say that God loved the world. We, we no longer find that surprising, but that should astonish us when we know the wickedness and rebelliousness of this world. God loved it. But we also looked at the gift of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Can there be a greater gift in all the universe than God the Father giving up God the Son? The love of God, the gift of God, and then the faith of God. And I call it the faith of God because we learn that it's a gift that comes from God. By the work of the Holy Spirit, enabling his people to believe upon Jesus Christ. And then we saw the wrath of God last week. I don't know if anything was more difficult for me to preach in that message. It is extremely difficult to meditate on hell. But we saw the unending nature of God's wrath poured out upon a people who will not repent and put their faith in his son. But then today we come to the last section. Those four words, but have eternal life. The life of God. The eternal life of God. Now when I speak about the life of God, I'm not talking about endless existence. Because everyone, no matter who you are, or whether you end up in heaven or hell, all of us have endless existence. We will spend eternity somewhere. So eternal life is not talking about that. Because the Bible says here in John 3.16, only those who believe on Christ will have eternal life. So it can't mean endless existence. It means something far more precious and far greater than that. And we're going to take a look at that this morning. I want to simply answer one question today. So it's going to be real simple. The question is, what is eternal life? What is it? And I have seven answers for you. All drawn from Scripture. Number one, eternal life is the life of Christ. That's where we have to start. It's the life that Jesus Christ himself possesses. Now go with me over to 1 John chapter 1. And we're not going to have the Scriptures written out on the screen today. So if you have a Bible, you're going to need it. Or if you want to just jot down the references, I'll read it to you. But it's 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. John opens up his epistle by saying, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Now what in the world is John talking about in verse 1? He's talking about something that he heard, something that he saw, and something that he touched, right? And then he goes on to say, this, whatever this thing is, 
is all called, it's also called the word of life. And he says this word of life was manifested, became visible to us. And we have seen and we have testified and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and which was manifested to us. Well, what in the world is he talking about here? Who or what was with the Father and was manifested to us? Jesus Christ. He calls Jesus Christ the eternal life in verse 2. And this is a little bit different for me because growing up as a Christian, I always thought, oh, eternal life is sort of like a gift that God gives you as a reward for accepting his son. You know, you accept Jesus and then God gives you this gift. And this is a separate little package called eternal life. But the Bible doesn't speak about eternal life that way. The Bible speaks about eternal life as a person. Not a separate gift that he gives you. It, it's Jesus himself. That is who eternal life is. Go with me over to Revelation 22. Hopefully this will make this a little more clear. Revelation 22 verse 1. Now here John is seeing a vision. And he says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now just think with me about that. John sees in vision form this river of the water of life. Living water. Now where is this river of the water of life coming from? The throne of God, which is also the throne of the Lamb. Because they both sit upon that throne. This river of the water of life is proceeding from God. From Jesus Christ, the Lamb. Now, it's interesting. When we go over to John chapter 4, we see Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman. And in his conversation with her, he speaks about this river, these waters of life. There in John chapter 4, he says in um, verse 7, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you what? Living water. Does that ring any bells? What proceeds from the throne of God and of the Lamb? A river of living water. Now we find that same water, maybe it's not the river, but a little stream, an outlet from this river, transplanted from heaven, from the throne, inside of the soul of a person. The, and, and we remember, eternal life is Jesus. It's Christ himself. The very life that Jesus Christ possesses is transplanted from the throne into the heart and the soul of a sinner on earth. That's when salvation takes place, when this water of life comes inside of you. The very life of Christ transplanted into the soul of man. What kind of life does Jesus possess? Well, it's a lot different from the life that we're born with, isn't it? We have biological, physical life. 
Jesus Christ has an uncreated life. It's underived. It's independent. It doesn't depend upon anybody or anything else. It's a supernatural and all-powerful life. And this kind of life is what God sends into the soul of the believing sinner to save him. Back in the 1600s, there was a man by the name of Henry Skugel. I don't know if you've ever heard that name. But he was writing a fairly lengthy letter to a friend of his who was losing his faith. And after Henry Skugel died, they found this letter. And it was so precious and so profound that they reprinted it. And they reprinted it as a book. And they gave it a title, The Life of God and the Soul of Man. And that is a, a, a beautiful definition of what true Christianity is. Unless God's life is in your soul, you're not a Christian. You can do all kinds of other things. But unless the very life of God, the uncreated, independent, underived, supernatural life of God has come into your soul, you're still lost in your sin. So if eternal life is Christ, and if the only way we can be saved is to somehow partake of that life in our soul, how do we get it? How do we get that eternal life? Well, John says in 1 John 5, 12, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So the way you partake of that life of God is you have to receive or be joined to or be vitally united to Jesus Christ. Unless you're joined to him, you're still lost and dead in sin. It's kind of like if you go into your backyard with some clippers and you chop off a branch from the tree back there. And I would say to you, well, is that branch alive or dead? You'd say, well, I, I guess it's dead. I said, well, how come? It looks alive to me. I see those green leaves on it. What do you mean it's dead? I said, well, it, 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 those leaves are going to fall off pretty soon, and we're going to find out that it's going to shrivel up and it's just going to be thrown away and burned because there's no life in that branch. But if we took that dead branch and we grafted it back in where it was clipped off and we put some tape around it so that it stayed there, eventually we would find that the life that is in the tree would flow through that branch, and even though the leaves have all come off, they would start to come back on again, and it would start to bear fruit. Why? Because the branch now has been joined to the life of the tree. That's what happens, needs to happen to you and me if we are to be saved. We have to be joined to the living water, that, that river of living water that throw, flows from the throne of heaven. We have to have that in us or we will perish. If I was helping Debbie cut vegetables for dinner and I was using a really sharp cutco knife and I accidentally chopped off my finger and there it is over here, I'm just, blood's gushing all over the place, I'm bandaging this up, but there's the, my fingertip, you know, two or three inches long. Is that finger alive or dead? It's dead, isn't it? Because my life is no longer flowing into the finger. Now, I've heard that if you can get that fingertip on ice and get to a doctor fast enough, and if he sews it back on, it'll come back alive. I mean, if, as long as the fingertip's <laughs> lying there on the table, it can't move anymore. It can't grasp objects. It's just inert, powerless to do anything. But join it to a living body? 
the, the life of the head flowing through the body into the finger, and now you have, well, it can wiggle, it can do all kinds of things, because it's alive now. And that's exactly what has to happen if we are to be saved. We have to be vitally joined to Jesus Christ the King. So eternal life is the life of Christ. Secondly, eternal life is the free gift of God. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus, in John chapter 10, was speaking to some religious leaders. And he starts describing his own people. He describes them as sheep. There in John 10, verse 27, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now, think about that carefully. My sheep, what do they do? They hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, and I give eternal life to them. I give it. I don't sell it. I give it. I don't offer to the highest bidder. I don't say, if you just do enough good works, you can have it. It's a gift. It's a gift. If, if I offered Nicholas my old iPad, I said, Nicholas, you want a gift? I've got an iPad for you. He says, yeah, Pastor Brian, I'd love to have one of those. So he comes up, I give him my iPad, and I say, okay, that'll be $200. He said, wait, wait a minute. You just said it was a gift. You can't charge me if you're going to give me a gift, right? The definition of a gift is there's no strings attached. There's no cost to it. There's no price to it. And he'd be absolutely right. When God, in his word, says that he gives eternal life, that's exactly what he means. It's free. It's free. God isn't requiring you to measure up to a certain standard before he'll bestow the gift on you. All he wants you to do is receive it, to reach out your hands and take it. Isaiah 55, verse 1, begins with these great words. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without cost. Don't you love that? He, the blessings of salvation are likened to water, wine, and milk. And he's saying, you who have no money, you can have this. Come and buy it without money and without cost. You don't have to bring any money. You just come and obtain it freely. It's a gift of God. So eternal life is the very life of Jesus Christ, and it's the free gift of God. And then thirdly, it is bestowed only on the elect. Now, if you're not familiar with that word elect, let's think about it for a minute. When we talk about, well, in a couple of years, we're going to elect a new president, what do we mean? We're going to choose one. By popular vote, we're going to choose a new president. When, when I say eternal life is bestowed only on the elect, what I mean simply is that it's bestowed only on those God has chosen to receive that gift. That's who the elect are, the chosen ones. Now, in Scripture, sometimes the elect are given the name of the sheep. I know my sheep, and they know me, and they follow me. The sheep, and in contrast to the goats. Sometimes 
the elect are known as the bride of Christ. Sometimes the members of his body. Sometimes those who are predestined to life. Jesus talked about the elect in Matthew 24. He said that it's going to become so bad with false Christ and so prof false prophets that if it were possible, even the elect would be deceived. Those who are chosen by God are the ones who receive this gift. Now let me show you that from Scripture. Let's go over to John 17 and take a look at Jesus' words. John 17 is his high priestly prayer. It's the prayer Jesus Christ offered to his Father the night before he went to the cross. And this is at the very beginning of his prayer. He says in verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. He says, Father, you have given me, the Son, authority over all flesh. Now, what is that talking about? Who's all flesh? Every person, every individual of humanity, every member of Adam's race, from Adam on down to today, every person who's ever lived, that's all flesh. God the Father gave Jesus authority over all people for a particular purpose. He says there in verse 2, so that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. You see, there's a specific group of people. Here's all flesh, this big circle. Then there's a smaller circle within the big circle. That's all whom the Father has given Jesus. Well, who are those folks? Does that mean everybody who's ever lived? No. It means the elect. The ones God had given to Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world they are the ones he came into the world to represent. They are the ones that he achieved actual reconciliation with the Father. Not only did he achieve the basis of their salvation at the cross, but he also purchased the gift of the reception of salvation, which is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the infilling of the Spirit, the new birth, the awakening to faith, repentance. All of that was included in the purchase price of the cross, and Jesus came on their behalf to get them. See, in John chapter 6, Jesus talks about those that the Father had given to him. Let me, let's just read a few passages of Scripture there. In John 6, 37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. There's that phrase, all that the Father gives me. What's going to happen to them? They're going to come to Christ. And the one who comes, I'll certainly not cast out. And then verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. So here we have that group again. All that the Father has given me, they come, and Jesus is not going to lose a single one of them. He's going to raise every single one of those up on the last day. Or if you were to go over to John chapter 10, where we just were, He says in verse 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Well, who is he talking about? The sheep. The ones who hear his voice and follow him. Those are the sheep. Those are the ones that were given to him by his Father. But we're not done yet. John 17. There's other references to this group. Verse 9. 
Jesus in his prayer says, Father, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. You see, he's not asking for every person that's ever lived. That would be the world. He's asking for those the Father has given to him out of the world, a, a subgroup, a subsection of the world. So these are people the Father gave to Jesus. Jesus came into the world to get them. And Jesus says, this is the group that I give eternal life to. I have authority over all mankind so that I will give eternal life to this group, the ones the Father gave the Son. You say, well, Brian, is that the only scripture you can come up with? No, I'm going to give you another one. Acts chapter 13. Let me show you this one. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. Here we have Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary tour. They come to a city in Antioch. They've been preaching inside the synagogues there. And then eventually they go to the Gentiles. And some of the Gentiles start responding to their gospel. Look at Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now, certain things you need to pick out of that verse. First of all, not everybody in the world has been appointed to eternal life. Because as many as had been appointed believed, not all people believe. Those who believe, they had been appointed to eternal life. Notice that we're not appointed to eternal life because we believe. We believe because we have already been appointed to eternal life. Do you see that in the text? There is a prior causation. Here is the cause, appointment to eternal life. Here is the effect, belief in Jesus Christ. This one happens before this one takes place. Before the foundation of the world, God appointed certain people to eternal life. He gave those people to His Son who would impart His eternal life to them, into their soul. They would be one with Christ, united to Him by faith, and they would live with Him for all eternity in the glories of heaven. As many as had been, past tense, had been appointed to eternal life believed. When I was in school, they would line up all the kids in a single line and we were going to play kickball. And the teacher would come out and say, okay, I appoint you and I appoint you as captains. Come on out here and choose the team. Well, what did it mean, I appoint you? I select you. I choose you. Certain people have been appointed by God for everlasting life. If this is a new concept, I hope it doesn't stumble you. It's... It's from Genesis to Revelation. Um, we shouldn't apologize for the truths of God. We should simply receive them and lean on them and let them benefit our soul because there is such rich, wonderful truth in this doctrine. This is the biblical doctrine of election. So here we have eternal life. It's bestowed only upon the elect. When I lived in Milpitas, and pastored a small church there, every Christmas we would go and bring Christmas goodies to a certain number of families within the church. There were just way too many families for us to bring Christmas goodies to every single one. So what we would do is we would, Debbie would, make up all these Christmas goodies, and then the boys and the, the four of us would hop in the car and we'd go around to four or five homes of those that we were closest to. And we would deliver... Christmas goodies, and we'd sing them, we wish you a Merry Christmas, and hand them their goodies, and we're off to the next place. 
We didn't give those goodies to every family in the church. We gave them to ones that we chose to give to. And God has a gift. It's called eternal life. And God has the prerogative of to, to give that particular gift to whomever he wills. He's under no compulsion to give that gift to any person at all. We've sinned away any right to the gift of eternal life. If you are giving a gift, isn't it within your control to do with it whatever you want? If I have an iPad I'm going to give away, I can either keep it or give it. And if I give it, I can give it to whoever I want. It's my choice, isn't it? Well, that's the same way with God. He has the gift of eternal life and he gives it to whomever he will. Let's look at number four. Eternal life is the present possession of every believer. The present possession. I'm going to look at uh, John 3.36 with you. John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now just look at the first part of that verse. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. It doesn't say he who believes in the Son will have eternal life. He has it. He has it right now. <laughs> he has it the moment he believes on the Son. Whoever believes and whenever they believe, they have present possession at that moment, everlasting life. Because through faith, they are united to Christ who is eternal life. They have it. Or John 5.24 Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Has it. And he doesn't come into judgment, but he has already passed out of death into life. Folks, you don't get eternal life when you die. You get it when you're born again. When you're born again, you pass out of spiritual death and you pass into spiritual life. You're vitally connected to that tree that's alive or that river with living water flowing through it or that body where the head is alive passing the life into its members. Jesus imparts and communicates his very life to your soul and you have it at that very moment. Isn't it a bummer when someone gives you a Christmas gift and they say, well, here's your Christmas gift, but you can't open it until Christmas. You say, oh, rats. My goodness. We have to wait till Christmas. Gee whiz. You know, God doesn't give the gift of eternal life like that. He says, here's your gift. Open it right now. Start enjoying it this very minute. And we do. The moment you're born again, you start to enjoy the very life of Jesus Christ within your soul. Because he starts changing you and imparting to you that life. Giving you new desires and values and a new nature. Everything becomes new. Alright, let's look at number five. Eternal life is accompanied by personal holiness. Well, I changed it since then. <laughs> That's what I get when I give Oleg my outline too soon. Here's the new one. Eternal life is accompanied by personal holiness. That's what sanctification means. Sanctification means holiness. The root of that word means to be set apart. We're set apart from sin to God. Every Christian goes through a process that we call progressive sanctification. It means he progressively is separated more and more from sin unto God. His entire life. 
It lasts his entire life. And then when he meets the Lord finally, when the Lord comes back or he dies, that sanctification is completed. So he is initially sanctified when he's born again. Then he goes through this process of progressive sanctification, personal holiness, and then he experiences ultimate glorification when he is made completely holy and all sin is eradicated from his life. And that happens when he meets the Lord face to face. Eternal life is always accompanied by personal holiness. Let's look at some scripture. Romans chapter 6. Romans 6 verse 22. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. Now here it's speaking about eternal life as the full and final expression of eternal life, that everlasting life that we will experience after death. I believe that's what he's talking about here because he says the outcome of this sanctification is everlasting life. So the final expression of it but notice that before that final expression of eternal life, we go through this process that he calls sanctification, holiness. Let's look over at Galatians chapter 6, verse 8. Paul says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Who's going to reap eternal life? The one who sows to the Spirit. Isn't that what he says? Only the one who sows to the Spirit. How do you know if you've received eternal life? One of the ways you can know it is you're becoming holy. If you're content to live in sin, it may be a real good indicator that you've never received eternal life. The one who has received Christ truly, who's been made one with Jesus Christ, can't help but become holy. I wasn't planning to share this, but I'm going to. Ezekiel 36. Let me just read this to you. Ezekiel 36, 25. Here's a new covenant blessing. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you. That word is there for a reason. It's important that you get this. <laughs> I'm going to put my spirit within you and I'm going to cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That is the work of regeneration. The spirit comes in, he causes you to live a new kind of life. Now sure, you have times when you cooperate really well with that and you begin to grow in faith. There are times when you put up some roadblocks, but even then, the Spirit of God will overcome those roadblocks. He's committed to your sanctification. In fact, if you get stubborn against that work of holiness, He's going to chastise you. He's going to spank you. He'll, he'll take you backside the woodshed and give you a good licking until you get into, oh, I, I, this isn't optional for me. The Lord is my loving Father and He wants me to become like Him. 
So a life of holiness accompanies the gift of everlasting life in every single case. Every single case. Let's look at one more. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verse 12. Paul says, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Well, right before he says that, he says, fight the good fight of faith. In other words, fight the good fight of faith, which will result in taking hold of eternal life. Not the initial acceptance of eternal life. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the eternal life that grows within your soul as you live before God. Fight. These are words that every Christian needs to hear. God has called us to fight. We're not here just to lay down and let the enemy run right over us. We are to take up our sword and do battle against Satan, against sin, against doubts, against fears, against everything that would cause us to stifle up and shrivel up instead of to flower into the beings, the people that God wants us to be. We're to fight. We're to fight. We're to fight day after day after. Our whole life is a life of fighting. Fighting the enemies of our soul. You know, sometimes we go down to the light rail and we witness to people there and we'll share the gospel with them and they'll say, well, you don't need to bother about talking to me. I'm already saved. I've already received eternal life. But they're either loaded or drunk or you find out they're living with their girlfriend or they're taking the name of the Lord in vain. And so many people are self-deceived. They think they have eternal life when they're not living a life of holiness. So if, if you are determined to go on living in sin, you ought to just drop your profession of faith. Just say, I don't have eternal life if you're going to go on living in sin. Because eternal life will cause you to walk in God's law, God's ordinances, and to do His will. So eternal life is the life of Christ. It's the free gift of God. It's bestowed only on the elect. It's the present possession of every believer. It's accompanied by personal holiness. And number six, it is to know God and Jesus Christ. That is the, the, probably the best definition you can give of it. And Jesus is the one that gives us that definition in John chapter 17. Now we read verses 1 and 2. Let's look at verse 3. Jesus says, this is eternal life. You want to know what it is? That they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life. That we would know God and know Christ. If you don't know God and know Christ, you don't have eternal life. If you do, you do possess eternal life. Everybody who possesses eternal life knows God and knows Jesus. Now this is not the same thing as knowing correct doctrine. It's not the same thing as knowing your Bible. It's not the same thing as being able to memorize the Westminster Confession of Faith or to memorize the Westminster Shorter Catechism with all the questions and answers. This isn't the same thing as having solid, sound doctrine. We're talking here about a relationship. Knowing a person. Walking with that person. Talking to them. Them talking to you. Um, you know, if you ask me, do you know Barry Bonds? I say, well, 
I know some things about Barry Bonds. I know he hit a lot of home runs. He played for the Giants. They accused him of using steroids. I guess I know Barry Bonds. No, you don't know Barry Bonds. I'm not talking about knowing a few facts about Barry Bonds. I'm talking about knowing him like his wife knows him. An intimacy of relationship where they're talking every day. They're communicating. They're fellowshipping. They're, they're having rich communion together. That's what I mean here by knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ. It's not to know a few things about God. It's to enter into a relationship with God where you're getting to know Him more and more and more. And I think one of the beautiful things about heaven is that heaven is going to be an eternity of God's people getting to know Him forever. You say, well, wouldn't it get boring in heaven? Isn't heaven going to be boring? Well, if we ran out of things to know about God, maybe it would. But God is an infinite being. We can get to know him pretty well down here, but oh, there are worlds about God that we're going to get to know forever. And because we're going to be discovering more about his person and his glorious attributes and who he is for all eternity, heaven's going to be exciting. I'm glad it's going to go on forever because I can't wait to explore more of God. So eternal life is to know God and is to know Jesus Christ. Number seven, Eternal life is to experience glory, honor, and immortality. That's what we find in Romans chapter 2 and verse 7. Paul is speaking about those who are seeking God. He says, To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, comma, eternal life. And I take that to mean that eternal life consists of glory, honor, and immortality. Those who, by perseverance in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, which is eternal life. Paul says, or excuse me, Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. He's talking about proven faith. He says, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now what does he mean there by the revelation of Jesus Christ? What is that? You guys are awake, aren't you? <laughs> You're out there, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, it's the revealing of Jesus Christ. It's when he comes back, his second coming. He reveals himself. So when Christ reveals himself at his second coming, what is going to happen to those who have proven faith? They've gone through suffering. They've gone through trial. And they have not cast off faith, but they've held on to their faith in Christ. He says three things are going to happen. Praise, glory, and honor. Well, who's praise, glory, and honor? we would naturally be inclined to think it's going to be Christ's. But I do not believe that's what this verse is talking about. I believe it's talking about that Christ himself will give praise or approval. Well done. He's going to give glory to the Christian who has endured, persevered by faith, and he's going to honor that Christian. Let's unpack that. First of all, glory. Let's talk about glory for a minute. 
Over in Philippians 3, Paul talks about what our bodies are going to go through when Jesus Christ returns. He says, when Christ returns, this is Philippians 3.21, he's going to transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? To go through this this change where your body is glorified. Your body becomes sort of a mirror image of Jesus' resurrection body. What was his body like? It was powerful, spiritual, supernatural, imperishable. And those are all the things that Paul tells us will be true of our glorified bodies in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Our body is going to be like Christ's body. Won't it be wonderful Never to have a body that has these lusts that you have to fight constantly day after day. It doesn't lust to do evil anymore. The body is now wanting to be a willing servant of the soul which is completely sanctified and only wants to do righteousness. There are no more longings after sin, only perfect holiness. And our body is just, yeah, let's do it. Let's go. It's, it's a willing servant of that holy soul that is inside of it. That is going to be tremendous. Now our, our bodies are ridden with sin, with temptation, with sickness, with weakness. But there's coming a day when these bodies will not have to fight any of those things anymore, but they will be devoted completely and solely unto the service of our Master, the Lord Jesus Christ, for all eternity. So eternal life is to experience glory, the glory of a new body. And then we're going to shine like the sun in the glory of our Father. What about honor? Honor. Look with me at Luke chapter 12. Jesus here is speaking uh, to his disciples about what it's going to be like when he returns. He says in verse 35 of Luke 12, Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Now here he's talking about what it would be like when he returns again. Look at verse 37. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and he'll come up and wait on them. Now if this wasn't in my Bible, I don't think I could ever believe it. It seems so contrary to what I would have anticipated when Jesus Christ comes yeah we're going to be worshiping him but he's going to have us sit down and he's going to take off his towel and he's going to stoop to figuratively wash our feet he's going to be serving the saints does that blow your mind Jesus the king of glory is going to come and start serving you those who have been waiting anxiously for his return who have been seeking his return He's going to come and honor you by, by bending down and, and serving you. So he's going to glorify the saints. He's going to honor the saints. What about immortality? Well, we saw last week that those who are impenitent and do not put their faith in Jesus Christ will also have immortality, but it will be immortality in the regions of darkness and misery and wretchedness and eternal sufferings.
But we're talking here about a different kind of immortality. The immortality of light. The immortality of joy and of happiness and of peace in the presence of Almighty God. So eternal life is to experience glory and honor and immortality. Let's break this down then and come with some, some lessons. What does all this mean for us? Number one, it means that we need to consider how infinitely important our brief life is upon this earth. Do you think about that very often? It can be easy for us to lose sight of this tremendous, tremendous truth. We only have 60, 70, 80, maybe if we live especially long, 90 or 100 years. That is nothing. <laughs> that is a dot. That's a blip compared to eternity. And during those years, we are to make preparation for endlessness, either happiness or wretchedness and suffering that will never end. This, this brief lifetime that we have is preparation for eternity. One of the reasons I really like to write the old, to, to read the old writers, like those who lived in the 1600s or 1700s or 1800s, is because, I don't know why, they seem to have this concept so much ingrained upon their heart that it just oozes from their writings. They saw, I don't know why we've lost it today. It is such an essential part of our Christian life to, to live each day knowing that I am investing either in hell or heaven. Listen to these writers with me. Thomas Brooks. He says, The great weight of eternity hangs on the small wire of time. The great weight is hanging on this thread, supported by this thread of time that we live in, these 70, 80 years. What you do now will count for all eternity. Samuel Davies a guy I've really been getting to know lately in my studies. I love this man. One of the greatest preachers I've ever read his sermons by. He's up there, I would say, with Whitfield in his sermons. He says, Time like an ever-running stream is perpetually gliding on and hurrying us and all the sons of men into the boundless ocean of eternity. That's where your time is taking you. Day well, let's stop. Second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, week by week. They're flowing, flowing endlessly and irreversibly on into eternity. So you ought to be investing your minutes and seconds and hours and days now and the things are going to count then. And it is absolute madness not to do that. If you believe this Bible, it's, it's insanity not to do that. Jonathan Edwards said, Time is precious for four reasons. One, because a happy or miserable eternity depends on the good or ill improvement of it. Two, it's very short. The scarcity of any commodity occasions men set a higher value upon it. Time is so short and the work we have to do in it is so great we have none of it to spare. The work which we have to do to prepare for eternity must be done in time or it never can be done. Number three, we are uncertain of its continuance. We could all die today or tomorrow. We don't know how long we're going to live. And number four, when it is past, it cannot be recovered. Now that makes sense to me, does it to you? There's not a, a, a single one of those four reasons that I can reject. They're, they're true, every one. 
Richard Baxter, the great Puritan, said, Heaven will pay for any loss we may suffer to gain it, but nothing can pay for the loss of heaven. Nothing. John Wesley said, I desire to have both heaven and hell ever in my eye while I stand on this isthmus of life between two boundless oceans. Now you guys know what an isthmus is, right? It's that little stretch of land and you've got an ocean on this side and an ocean on that side. He says, I want to always stand on this isthmus looking this way and looking that way. And that's how the Christian should live. Have hell in one eyeball and have heaven in the other. Hell to cause you to flee from sin and heaven to run to Christ. These ought to drive and motivate the Christian to live every single day of his life. They ought to help us make the decisions we make. Decisions ought to be made on eternal values, not temporal ones. Oh, Isaiah 55 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the unrighteous man forsake his way and the wicked man forsake his thoughts and the Lord will have compassion on him and will abundantly pardon him. So consider how infinitely important your brief life is and invest your time in eternal things. Number two, if you have not received the gift of eternal life at once, today, now, <laughs> do not put this off. If, you don't, if you're not sure, if you possess eternal life, if you're not sure about that, then make sure of it. Receive Jesus Christ. Remember, eternal life is just Christ. To receive the gift of eternal life is to receive Jesus. To receive Him for all that He is. Your God, your King, your prophet, your priest, your treasure. He is all in all. Receive Him and begin to follow. Start a life of following Jesus today. If we do not have the gift of eternal life, we need to admit to God, my soul is dead. Let me just give you a little test. Can you find excitement and interest in the things of the world, like a new video game, or a television show, or music on some station, or going to the movies over here, or you find, you get real excited and interested in those kinds of things, but when someone says, you know, let's go pray together, you find this aversion, like you're, you're, you don't want to do that, you're, you're averted to that, or, hey, let's go to church. Nah, I have better things to do than that. If you find an aversion to the things of the Spirit and a, an attraction to the things of the world, it's probably because your soul is dead to God. Spiritual death. If you can find rapture and the, and the earthly things that are little bubbles that are going to just vanish... And you can completely neglect the things of eternity. It means you probably means that your soul is dead. Or you're in a very, very spiritually sick condition. And you need God desperately to awaken you and quicken you. So receive the gift of eternal life today. Receive Jesus Christ. And you can do that right where you're sitting. You can just cry out to Him. The Bible says, whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Call out. Cry out. Lord, save me. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm undone. I, I have no ability to save myself, Lord. I can't be accepted in your presence by any amount of good works or attendance at church or Bible reading. 
I need you to come into my soul and make me a new man. Number three, cultivate your spiritual life. We've been talking about eternal life. That's simply another name for your spiritual life. The life of the Spirit that you enjoy. Cultivate it. You know, it's possible to be a Christian and still, still sow to the flesh. We do that from time to time, don't we? We plant seeds investing in our flesh rather than the Spirit. And it's possible for us as Christians to grieve the Holy Spirit. Paul says that's possible in Ephesians 4. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by which you were redeemed for the day of redemption. So it's possible for us to do that. We have to fight sowing to the flesh. We have to fight grieving the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean to sow to the Spirit? What does that look like? Well, planting. If you're going to plant seeds, it means you're going to invest in that garden. You're going to expend energy and effort getting the seeds into the ground. If you were to sow or plant to the Spirit, it means you're going to spend energy and effort investing in your spiritual life, your relationship with God. And so it looks like this. A man who's investing in and exerting effort in a prayer life. This is a man who exerts effort in opening up God's book and reading. Meditating upon what he reads. Memorizing verses of Scripture. Letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within him. It looks like a person who invests in a local church, committing himself to a Christ-centered, gospel-exalting, God-glorifying church, Bible-saturated church. Find a church like that and commit to it. Be there every week. Get involved serving in that body. You're, in, you're sowing to the Spirit as you do that. So these are, kinds of, these are some of the ways that you can in, invest and sow to the Spirit. When we sow to our flesh, it's like taking up this big container of water and just dousing our flame. It's quenching the Spirit in our life. And instead, we need to be pouring gas on the flame. Pouring gas on it. Lord, Quicken this flame. Cause it to burn brighter for you. I would encourage you, in addition to reading the Word, to read good books that will help you understand the Word and that will also impart zeal to your Christian life. And we have a book table over here. Kelly sets that up every week and hardly ever does somebody go over there and take a look at it. Folks, those are all free. <laughs> We're not asking for a penny. And there's, we have some of the richest writings in church history that we just give away. And they're in little pamphlet form. You can't lose. I'd encourage you. This is a plug for the book table. Take some of those home and read them. You, know, you get in bed at night. You have a few minutes before you're going to get uh, saw off and go to sleep. Read one of those. It's good for the soul. And then number four. Long for the full expression of eternal life. And what I'm talking about now is what you're going to experience of eternal life after you die. Long for it. Let that well up within your heart into an intense longing. Those of you who are getting up in your 50s and 60s and 70s, let the things of earth grow strangely dim in light of His glory and grace. Start to long for the life to come. 
it's not so hard to do when our bodies are growing so weak and, and, and they're falling apart on us. You know, if, if anybody here has that experience, you know what I'm talking about. We were just talking today about the fact that I can't smell anymore or hardly at all. My vision's bad. My hearing's bad. I mean, how, how many senses are there? There's only five and only one of them works. Touch. I mean, how can you go wrong with that one? <laughs> they're all, they're all going down. At least my brain still works and I can talk. That's what I told them. So as long as my brain works and I can talk, I could preach. But the other senses are going, you know, and we, we experience that as we age. Let this, this, these bodily weaknesses turn your gaze away from yourself and onto heaven and what you're going to experience there. You know, death is not a terror to the Christian. If some of you have a fear of death, I, I hope that I can convince you not to be afraid of death anymore. Yes, you may have to go through difficult, difficult time of pain as the soul and the body part from one another and separate. That's common. And a believer has no guarantee that he's not going to experience that. Yes, you may go through a lot of suffering when you die. But once you are on the other side, it is bliss. Eternal and everlasting, rapturous, ravishing bliss for the Christian as he beholds his God. So I just want to encourage you, long, long for the full expression of eternal life. Read books about heaven as you're getting older. Start praying, Lord, Jesus, come. Maranatha. And you know the way you're going to do that is by doing number three, cultivating your spiritual life. The more you cultivate your spiritual life, the more you'll have a longing in your heart for glory. You can't help it. So cultivate the life of Christ that he's given to you. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would take these simple exhortations and this teaching on eternal life to work deeply within your people today. I ask, Lord, if there's anyone here who does not possess eternal life. And Lord, I, it's likely that there are such. Lord, would you, first of all, show them that they're spiritually dead in spite of religious activity and then give them the concern for their soul. Open up a vision of Christ to them as their Savior, one who can save, and enable them, Lord, to cast themselves on His mercy, to cry out for salvation today. And Lord, those saints here, I pray that You'd quicken them with increasing vigorous movements of spiritual life, that they would grow and become more lively, the Lord, they would invest, just like planting seeds, they would plant seeds to invest in their spiritual life day by day. And that, Lord, you would reward all of those efforts with more and more communications of your very person to them. Lord, we are thankful that our inheritance is not just heaven. Our inheritance is God himself. It's you. an inheritance that we can never grow tired of and only increase our delight in as the years roll by. So Lord, do these gracious works in your people and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.